I'm Evan Smith of the Texas Tribune, and this is Point of Order, a podcast about the ins and outs of the 86th Texas Legislature. This week, politics, public policy, and the Hispanic community in Texas. Coming out of an election cycle in which Latino turnout surged and Democrats made unprecedented gains at the Capitol in Austin and in Washington, how has the landscape changed? What can and should the state's emerging demographic majority reasonably expect from state lawmakers? Which issues that resonate in Hispanic households are likely to rise to the top of the agenda? To discuss all that, I sat down with State Representative Rafael Anchia, a Democrat from Dallas who chairs the Mexican-American Legislative Caucus in the Texas House, and Christina Zinzun, founder and executive director of Jolt Texas, which organizes Latinos in Texas to leverage their growing political power. We were joined on the phone by Albert Morales, the senior political director of the Latino political opinion research firm Latino Decisions. We recorded our conversation on the morning of January 9th, 2019, the day after the 86th session gaveled in. Point of Order is supported by Methodist Healthcare Ministries, dedicated to creating access to healthcare for uninsured and low-income families in South Texas through healthcare services, advocacy, and strategic grant making. Learn more at mhm.org. And by Ambassador Tony Garza. Mexico is more than just a neighbor. For timely cross-border insight, turn to former U.S. Ambassador Antonio Garza at tonygarza.com. So existentially, Chairman, let me start with you. Was this a good election or a bad election for the Latino community? I think the election was very much a good election, and it was a strong reaction not only uh, against what we were seeing at the federal level uh, from President Trump, but then the um, it was also a very strong reaction against what we saw at the state level with uh, Governor Abbott, Lieutenant Governor Patrick, and SB4, uh, this this you know constant drumbeat of you know the border is insecure. There's an invasion. We're all at peril. Brown people are going to kill you if we don't do something. I mean that's been the narrative for a couple of years now. And and when you compound that with ten findings of intentional discrimination against the uh, Texas legislature uh, with respect to Latinos over both photo strict photo ID and gerrymandering, that's that's a lot. And and you know what I've come to learn is that people consume these events differently. Uh, Non-Latinos consume uh, this this staccato cadence of attacks against our community very differently than Latinos. And it's it's pretty well baked into the electorate right now. So so I think the electorate spoke uh, with a very loud voice. Yeah. Christina Simpson, the, the, the fact is that people are motivated by different things at election time. And there's been a long discussion in this state and in this country about what does or does not motivate the Latino community to turn out to vote. This was a an election cycle in which I hear Chairman Enche use the word against, against, against. There were probably things on both sides, for and against, but against was as much a motivator as anything, was it not? Yeah, I think what you see is that before this election, you know, the, if you looked at the media narrative that was about Latino voters, the story was Latino voters are apathetic, they don't want to vote. Well, the truth is that the election proved otherwise, that Latinos are starting to flex their muscle, that especially here in this state where one in five Latinos in this country live, here in Texas, that they are starting to make their voices heard, that they have the ability to determine a new direction for this state and this country. And that is the power that Latino voters have. But Latinos care about immigration, but it, 
it extends beyond that. They care about health care. They want education for their kids. And so what was important in this state is that you had a candidate like Bethel running that wasn't just saying what he was against and telling Latino voters that their lives could be worse. He told Latino voters how their lives could be better. He was making an affirmative argument he was as making much affirmative. as a negative argument. And then the last thing I would say is that yeah. for the Trump administration, I think that you know, watching the speech last night, um, that the lesson that the GOP and the Trump administration needs to take to heart is that in this state, Latino voters are very powerful. That in 2020, that this state could go blue because of the power of Latino voters and young voters. And that the Trump administration and the GOP should take a lesson that Texans don't appreciate being pushed around or told what to do. And since Trump has taken office, there has been record-breaking turnout of Latino voters and progressive voters in this state. And so if they continue to push us, we're going to start pushing back. And that that's going to be a seismic shift and change the politics, not just of this state, but change the politics nationally for a generation. And that's going to come from Latino voters. Albert Morales, to that point, we know that uh, Texas uh, doesn't always behave the way the federal government behaves, or, or Texas doesn't always behave the way the national electorate behaves, maybe said more appropriately. We know that at the national level, Latino ver- uh, turnout nearly doubled from the last midterm to this midterm, and that more than a quarter of the Latino voters this cycle were new voters, according to the polling that Latino decisions did. What are we to make of that? What do we think the cause or the catalyst of that was? Well, you know, Election Day was uh, obviously a day of reckoning, and I agree with everything that was just said by both Christina and the chairman. Um, So let's start with the morning of Election Day. You know, according to Google, their top trending search that, uh, term that morning was uh, uh, was, a, was a translation or the Spanish translation of where to vote. Um, but to further evidence that point, you know, we started seeing in our tracking poll um, a month out just uh, 70% of Latino voters, not only in Texas, but throughout most parts of the country where we were polling this uh, question, indicated that they were encouraging a family member or a friend to go vote. That is right up there, a parody with uh, the black vote. And that's materially different, Albert, from in previous election cycles, there was not that much encouragement made by family and friends? Oh, no, not at all. Uh, Very little, very little. Uh, And I I think, you know, people, uh, our community is just, they're finally tired of getting punched in the gut day after day after day. Um, That anger level as well uh, has has, has remained pretty high, even even post-election. Um, you know, the, the Latino precincts that we've been researching in, in Texas, for example, um, meaning th- those with 80% Hispanic registered voters outperform non-Latino uh, precincts by a two-to-one margin. Right. Uh, you know, those, those were, you know, you know, the county as well, you know, Hidalgo, Zapata, Cameron, Webb, uh, Jim Hogg, uh, others. Uh, when you compare those to uh, more non-Latino counties like Montague or Roberts, Sabine, Wood, uh, Clay and others, you know, th- there was a, a two to one difference, if not, if not uh, larger. So, um, Texas is now, we believe, a, a battleground state. It's not like Beto O'Rourke was running as a moderate Democrat or a you know conservative Democrat. He's pretty pretty left of center on on a number of issues. It was no secret that uh, his his politics weren't exactly uh, uh, you know uh, that of Paul Hobby, for example, and he appealed to. You know, he just came shy, what, 200,000 votes. Um, so I think 2020 is going to be obviously very, very interesting. And 
evidenced by I was summoned to the Democratic National Committee headquarters yesterday for a, for a briefing with, with the chairman to have this conversation. And my appeal to him was that we just cannot let up on what was just uh, built uh, in Texas over, over the course of the last couple of years. Yeah. So uh, the, the, the national folks are paying attention. Uh, obviously, folks in Texas are excited about uh, what 2020 brings. Chairman uh, and Chair, did the numbers in Texas allow for the kind of change that we're talking about here? Uh, you know, th- there were 4.5 million Latinos eligible to vote by one estimate in the last election. About 2 million uh, actually registered. A lot of opportunity with unregistered Hispanic voters who are eligible. But even still, with the population now at about 40% Hispanic and growing, over time, even if you overperformed in the Hispanic community at the statewide level, it really didn't affect the outcome of elections. Even with this extraordinary turnout, Democrats didn't win any statewide offices, came close on the Senate race, but didn't win it. Came close on attorney general. Came close on some of the other races, yeah. but but didn't win those. I mean, yeah. re- really, change is going to come a little bit more. So, I mean, I think the optimism about 2020, I understand where Albert is coming from and others have come from, but at the same time, the numbers don't necessarily suggest that that change is right around the corner. Well, I'll go back to the first thing you said, which is pointing out the upside. As a businessman, I'm always looking at opportunity, right? Yeah. And I'm looking at the huge population of eligible but unregistered. I'm looking at the massive numbers of 17-year-olds that are turning 18-year-old. I'm looking at the big numbers of legal permanent residents who are becoming U.S. citizens now in in this Trump context and this Abbott context. And uh, gosh, I, I all I see is upside. And when you couple that with, you know, as, as um, Paul Burka used to say, demographics are destiny, uh, you see a lot of, in fact, all I see is upside. I don't, I don't see a lot of downside. If, if Democrats are able to um, uh, really invest in, in, in the Latino community like Democrats have in places like California and Nevada, yep. um, that, uh, that could yield substantial benefits. Now, I will say Democrats have done a woefully inadequate job of that over time. Republicans have, have, have uh, done us a great favor by pushing Latinos into our arms through their, uh, their rhetoric and, and their policies. You're going to have to rely time. on Republicans to continue to help you. Well, and I right. think, you know, their natural inclination because of where their base is and where their president is, is going to, to, to be to pull in that direction. I mean, you know, there was no 2012 autopsy after 2018. Uh, and, and the president has, in fact, doubled down on the border, on being scared of brown people, right, on, just that, since on that narrative. Right. You know, when, when we talk about demographics, I'm going to read you a really interesting stat. You and I travel around the state every once in a while having these conferences talking about Texas politics. Um, Texas has gained almost four times as many Hispanic residents as white residents since 2010. Let me yep. read that again. Yeah four times as many Hispanic residents as white residents since 2010. And you and I are fond of talking about Tarrant County as kind of this, this canary in the coal mine, Bellwether right? County. Bellwether County. Largest it, conservative county in the country. Which went blue this cycle. And among all of the state's largest counties, Tarrant County was the home to the highest increase of Hispanic population in the entire state, okay? Uh, Tarrant County, the Latino population expanded in Tarrant County by about 25%, and that outpaced the overall growth rate in the state of about 18 to 20%. Yeah, Christina Sinson, I'm interested in Chairman Anchia talking about young Latinos becoming more and more of a factor in elections going forward. This is really the the the, the focus of your uh, organization, Joel Texas, and you personally have made 
that a big uh, part of your pitch to the state that young Latinos are going to really take over this state and they're going to have an increasing impact on the politics of the state. You saw elements of that in this election cycle, did you not? Yeah, I think, you know, Jolt was founded in November 2016, so we're only two years old, but we've grown really rapidly by tapping into the power of young Latinos, their voice, the issues that they care about. Um, I think what you saw this election cycle and what you see going forward is that though we make up 40% of the state's population, our real power is coming from young Latino voters. In this state alone, there was nearly a 500% increase from young voters across the state that turned out and voted. You saw um, between early vote and uh, Latinos requesting absentee vote, um, a 365% increase from Latinos in this state. Um, most of our population is really going, our power is going to be felt as a community over the next several election cycles. Every year on average in this state, 200,000 Latinos are turning 18. 95% of them are U.S. citizens. That is tremendous power, but what we need to do to make sure that we're tapping into that full power and potential. And they're extremely progressive. They want to legalize marijuana. They want to protect the rights of immigrants. They want universal health care. They want to cancel student debt. These are very progressive issues. This isn't like, this is the party of Bernie Sanders, essentially, is who these young Latino voters are. But what we have seen is that, again, demographics are important, but they can't be counted on alone. What we need to do is be investing in massive voter registration right now. Because in this state, 43% of Latinos under the age of 30 are not re are only 43% are registered to vote. If philanthropy, government, um and the major parties need to be investing in massive voter registration. Right. That is critical to being able to tap into the power of the Latino vote. The, the turnout increase among young people, Christina, I wonder if it is a sign of things to come or if it's in some ways very specific to this election cycle. You had two motivating factors. You had in Beto O'Rourke, an unusually inspiring and appealing candidate in the recent history of Democratic statewide and federal candidates on the ballot in Texas. And you had as president Donald Trump a figure who, according to the Latino decisions uh, a poll after the election, was motivating Latinos to turn out to vote at an extraordinarily high rate. Three quarters, according to the Latino decisions poll, of Latino voters were made angry or felt disrespected by the president, viewed uh, attacks by Republicans as divisive. As the old saying goes, anger is a greater motivator than joy at election time, and the president unlocked a lot of that anger. In the absence of a Beto O'Rourke at the top of a ticket in the next election or the next, if President Trump were to be frog marched out of the White House in the next two years and were not the president's, uh, the nominee for president in two years, would you be as optimistic about let young Latino voters turning out in the absence of a, of a positive on the side of Beto or a negative on the side of the president? I mean, I think that there has to be three things that need to be done. In my mind, there's three things to tap into the full power and potential of Latino voters. You have to invest in massive voter registration right now in 2019 and leading up to 2020. Second, we have to invest in good candidates and getting them to run. Some of them are not in public office right now. And then the second thing we have to do is we have to deliver real change to communities. Latinos have been told too long by Republicans and Democrats um, not how they're going to make their lives better, but that their lives could be worse. They have ignored them, they have failed to invest in them, and they really have failed to address the key issues that matter to our community. And I think the Democrats need to take stronger stands on healthcare and also immigration. You know, we have great representatives like Representative Anchia that has taken strong stances, but that is not across the Democratic Party, and nor in this state where one in six people are immigrants. Uh, Albert, the polling I referred to uh 
found that there were really two big motivating factors in the turnout this last cycle. One was Trump and the Republicans motivated Latinos to turn out. But the other, as your colleague Matt Barreto has said, was that there was historic outreach or a historic level of outreach. The campaigns did better in turning people out. What can you say about that specifically? What kind of outreach was successful this time that had not been successful in the past? Sure. If we look out west to, uh, let's take the state of Nevada, for example, uh, and in the interest of full disclosure, we worked with uh, now Senator Jackie Rosen from the onset. She went up on Spanish television uh, late spring, uh, more full throttle around June. But all in all, she ended up spending, along with her uh, allies, over two, two and a half million dollars on Spanish uh, television advertising. Um, she took the playbook that was employed by um, Senator Catherine Cortez Masto just two years earlier. Uh, you look over to Arizona. Uh, and uh, look at Kristen Cinema. She also employed uh, that same playbook and ended up maximizing, I think, the turnout. Uh, you know, just to touch a little bit more on the demographics piece, uh, there was a story that came out a couple of days ago about how Latin music albums now have surpassed in sales and, and listening audience that of country music throughout the country. That's a huge deal. Our research tells us that north of 30% of Latino uh, get their news from uh, just strictly Spanish uh, television. Uh, you look at uh, Congressman or then candidate O'Rourke. I think he's. We were able to track. He spent around five hundred thousand dollars statewide on Spanish television just to get put to, to put that in perspective. Uh, he was spending, I think, two hundred and fifty thousand dollars on a weekend um, English radio or TV buy in Dallas County alone. So he. He, he didn't maximize that reach. I think the opportunity was there for him to have done more tactically in, uh, in unlocking the potential of the Latino vote in Texas if he had simply uh, uh, changed his outreach strategy, stepped up his outreach Ab strategy. Absolutely. You've got networks, uh, both Telemundo Univision, who have higher ratings and some uh, right. uh, major English broadcasts in Houston and Dallas and other parts of the state. You look at Florida. Senator Nelson, he, he also uh, fell short by 10,000 votes. He didn't go up on Spanish television until I think it was late August, maybe early September, uh, whereas Rick Scott had gone up in April, I believe, and never went dark. Rick Scott spent, I think, $1.1 million during the World Cup alone. So the playbook uh, for the next election cycle will be developed out of the, uh, the byproducts of this election cycle. People will see next time what to do what to do this time chairman it's not just cultural we don't have to just change the culture of voting and of uh attentiveness to elections and candidates in the latino community but we also have to modify tactics yeah there's no question i mean i think donald trump will do a great job of keeping young latinos woke as it were uh and it as i said earlier it's up to democrats to actually develop some strategy right like we've had you know virtually zero investment in this state for as long as I've been in public service. So, and that's, that's upwards of around 16 years. We've and the been, national, we've been and the, the national, ATM. Right. The right? national party comes in here. They drag the sack across the bottom of the ocean. Right. They collect whatever money they can from democratic donors and then take it out of state to elect candidates in other places. And maybe now as a consequence of the cycle that, that slows or stops. Yeah. And, and no disrespect to these other states. I mean, I understand each of them has two senators, but if you flip Texas, it's ball game. It's a much big, it's a much, much bigger deal. Christina, you have been talking about issues, which I think is great because we tend to focus on the importance of candidates or of tactics in campaigning, 
But at the end of the day, what affects people's lives on the ground are these issues. And again, I'm looking at the Latino decisions polling to understand where the Latino community was in this election cycle. Um, uh, 74% of Latino voters polled believed immigrants want to provide a better life and support legislation to make America more welcoming to immigrants. 70% believe that the Affordable Care Act should be strengthened. 76%, according to the poll, believe in stricter gun legislation. 70% believe in race as a factor in higher ed admissions. When you do the full list of issues that the Latino community was interested in in this election cycle, the top three were immigration and DACA, but then right behind that, healthcare, to your earlier point, and then jobs and the economy. Mm -hmm. So the idea that somehow you have to appeal to the Latino community only through the issues related to immigration reform, DACA, what have you, it's really a much more diverse menu of things that appeal to voters. Yeah, I think that there's, you know, when I think about the the missed opportunities with Democratic candidates, you know, I consider myself an independent progressive. Uh, you know, we live in a two-party system, so I, usually, I only vote Democratic, but I do think the Democratic Party needs to be stronger and better, and especially when talking to Latino voters. Too many times candidates think that they only need to talk to Latino voters through the lens of immigration, and usually through the lens of your life could be worse, immigration could be worse. We have no solution or plan, but we're willing to maintain the status quo without really fighting for what communities need. That is not a workable solution, especially for younger Latino voters in this state. One in two younger Latino voters in this state have a parent that's foreign born. 63% of Latinos in the state are immigrants or children of immigrants. We want real solutions, but we also, the truth is that even if immigration reform happened tomorrow, we would still be one in three Latinos in the state still wouldn't have health care. Our kids would still be going to some of the worst schools in the state. We would be the least likely to graduate college. Those are not fixes that will just come alone from immigration. So that's one failure is to think that we don't have to talk about the multiple issues that our community faces. The other issue that I see is failing is not calling the immigration debate for what it is. To me, the debate we're having about citizenship, about border, to me, that has nothing to do with immigration. At the end of the day, what the GOP is afraid of is the changing demographics. It's the same old story this country has told for a long time. It's about race plus voting power and trying to stop us from determining a new direction for this country. And so unless we call it out for what it is, I think that we're going to continue to have failures and problems on the immigration debate. To me, the rules on the census, the border wall, taking, trying to deny Americans their passports of Mexican descent, those are all tools of voter suppression. Yeah. Chairman, the, the, the Texas Hispanic community, which we know best being here, is twice as uninsured uh, as the state average and significantly more uninsured even beyond that than the national average at this point, is less college ready than the Anglo community, graduates college at a, at a, at a slower rate than the, uh, than the Anglo community, is paid less in the workplace than, we can go down the list, right? Yeah, right, right? So the set of issues that we're talking about are all issues that are directly relevant to the community of Hispanics here. In that respect, Texas Hispanics and Hispanics at the national level are not really different in terms of the issues that motivate them. Yeah, there's there's no question about it. And I think one of the reasons that during at least the last, you know, the two years, immigration has been the top tier issue is because of the, the you know, the dramatic imagery that we see of, you know, mothers and children getting gassed at the border, parents getting separated from their children, children dying at CBP, um, uh, among the most sympathetic members right. of our community who are our dreamers, uh, you know, 
being treated so poorly by Governor Abbott trying to cancel, you know, filing lawsuit to, to get rid of DACA and, the Trump, and President Trump uh, threatening to kill the program. I mean, that's why I think immigration pops up. And, 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 and our dreamers are symbolic, right? They're symbolic to the entire community. If, if, if elected officials are willing to treat our children and when I say our children collectively, I mean uh, some of the most vulnerable children in our community in this way, then what the hell are they going to do to the rest of us, right? I mean, if, if those are among the most sympathetic characters in this novel and, and, and the villain is treating them, you know, it, putting them in jail, then, then it, that sends a really strong signal to the community about, about where the GOP is. And, uh, and I think that's why it, it sucks up so much oxygen in the discussion. But Cristina's right. I mean, you know, uh, universal health care is, is something that Beto did talk about that I think is resonant with uh, uh, Latinos. Uh, in, in Dallas County, one out of every four people continues to be, right. you know, to not have any insurance. Along the border, it's closer to four out of ten, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. among the highest uh, uninsured counties in the entire country are along the Texas-Mexico border. And, and, you right? know, we talk about, about health care all the time, uh, you know, in our caucus. Uh, and then the last thing, I shouldn't say the last thing, but a, a among the other issues that, that is really important to, to, to signal is, is that infrastructure of opportunity that is failing Latinos currently, whether it's, you know, pre-K, whether it's uh, high quality public schools, where there's access to higher ed. Uh, I mean, that infrastructure in Texas is crumbling and, and that's, and every parent, Latino parent knows that the only way to get from point A to point B in America is through education. And if that infrastructure, if that bridge is falling down, you're not going to get there. And you're not, not going to deal with any of the other issues if you don't deal with that issue. Right. The, the only other one is if you're sick, you can't get across right. the bridge, right? Um, Albert, to this point of Democrats and Republicans, which Christina and Chairman Anchia have both just talked about, um, we know from your polling that another way in which Texas Hispanics and Hispanics nationally are similar or were similar in this election is that they overwhelmingly voted Democratic. At the federal level uh, or at the national level, three-quarters of Hispanic voters you polled in the 70 congressional districts that I think were the basis for your poll voted Democratic in the congressional races. Um, here in Texas, according to your polling, 74% of Hispanics voted for Beto O'Rourke in the Senate race. So if you want to try to do an apples-to-apples -apples comparison, it's basically three out of every four Hispanics voting, whether in Texas or nationally, voted Democratic. Albert, why do we assume that Hispanics are naturally or necessarily Democratic in their voting disposition? Do we, do we assume that? We sometimes hear, here in Texas... We just have to wait for the population to change. People who are looking for some kind of bluing or purpling of Texas, just wait for the demographics to change. When the Hispanic community is in the majority, everything will be fine. Democrats will take over. Albert, do you think that the, the data that you've seen suggests necessarily that that's the case? Um, I think when we speak to Texas, and I'll, I'll also add Florida into that bucket, um, these are two distinct states that I still believe that 40% of Latinos are persuadable. Um, we saw that. Uh, you, you could argue that that, that happened with uh, with Rick Scott, for example. Um, well, and, and Greg, Greg Abbott running for governor of Texas this time got 42% of the Hispanic vote. It is believed against Lupe Valdez, a Hispanic candidate for governor. Got 44% last time against Wendy Davis. Republicans have done pretty well with the Hispanic community, at least in the last couple of elections here, right? Right. And it helps to have what I forget. Last time I checked, I think Governor Abbott had raised north of $50 million for his re-election bid. Right. And you're able to flood the airways. and So much and, he was uh, spending it in other races. Right, yeah. right. 
And let's not forget, Texas is the heart of the Latino Bible Belt. Um, you know, my parents are in Tarrant County. They're, they're, while they're immigrants, they're also, you know, they're, they attend the Southern Baptist Church. Now, they're very progressive on the issue of immigration, but there are some social issues that they are just non-negotiable on right. that I won't touch on. Uh, but they're not in the minority. I mean, they are not an uh, anomaly. There are, there, there are many. So the, the idea that Hispanics may be small-c conservative in values in a way that makes them open to the Republican pitch. Look, I, you, right. you know, it, it, I, I go it, to these... It, it seems like it's been years since uh, George W. Bush, though. Um, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, here, here lately, uh, and I, we're going to have to do some more research on this, Evan, to, to determine whether or not these gains the last November are, are, are permanent. Certainly the new... The, the young Latinos turning 18 and becoming a voting age, um, those are going to continue to pad our, our numbers, but it, remain, it remains to be seen as to whether or not the Republican Party is completely uh, awash as it relates to uh, appealing to Latino voters in, in, in Texas. Yeah. I, I still think that uh, there is a there is a, a core constituency there that, that can still be persuaded to vote for the right Republican in, in the mold of a right. Of a George W. Bush, for example. You know, Chairman Anchia, the fact is the Latino Decisions poll found that, uh, you know, asked very simply, do you agree or disagree with Donald Trump's work as president, approve or disapprove? Basically, 30% of Hispanic voters said that they either strongly or somewhat agreed with Donald Trump. I mean, if three in 10 Latinos, that's much, you know, I look at that number and I think 30% support Donald Trump given the policies of this administration. What does that tell you about the persuadability of the Latino electorate as it relates to Democrats and Republicans? Yeah, and, and I, I see the Latino vote more of a, especially among older Latinos, as a swing and not a base vote. Um, and, and as Albert correctly pointed out, 40% of that basket of Latino voters is going to be persuadable. Uh, and to my earlier point that Democrats have, not done a particularly good job, and re Republicans have done an awful job and have um, moved them in our column for the last couple of uh, election cycles. But, you know, if we spend some time investing in infrastructure in the Latino community, I mean, the, the Koch brothers have had this Libre initiative mm -hmm. that, that works in the Latino community uh, on a regular basis. They've poured hundreds of millions of dollars into this thing over time. They've got people on the ground, and, uh, you know, just the unlimited spigot on the GOP side has... has you know, I think allowed them to get that 30% uh, because of advertising into the community, because of these grassroots efforts. And on the Democratic right. side, we just haven't been able to match that. And, and I would add, too, you know, we, we're talking a lot about, like, the moment we're in without projecting what's the future of in the implications of this state changing. Um, I imagine a state very different than the one we're in right now over the next several election cycles, and that it's going to be a key investment that happens in younger Latino voters. You know, Joel, we made a specific focus on fun, focusing on younger Latino voters, not only because of the sizable impact that they're going to have over the next several election cycles. By our next gubernatorial race, one in three voters in the state is going to be under the age of 30. The most of most of them are going to be brown and black. They are extremely progressive, and on the social issues that we see. Older voter, Latino voters nervous about, younger Latino voters are there. Right. There is there. a generational split. Is, is there not between the parents and the grandparents and the kids coming up? Boomers yeah. versus millennials, right? right. We I see mean, that across uh, racial right. and gender lines. I remember in the 08 presidential campaign when the older Hispanic Democrats were for Secretary Clinton and the younger Hispanic Democrats, not monolithically, but largely were for, for Senator Obama, right? There was a split even in the Democratic Party at that time, and it was generational. 
Right. And we may see that generational split g give way to more younger Latinos becoming more powerful over time. But we are a very young population. Our overall population, half of all those turning 18 in this state are Latino. Um, the vast majority of our population is really under the age of 30. So that's why you have this, not just this generational split, but this huge opportunity with young voters. And in this state, the other thing that's really important, I do believe in supporting candidates, but the truth is that most uh, Latinos, even though they vote Democratic, a lot of them still see themselves as nonpartisan. They see themselves, they don't see that the Democrats are standing up strong enough on the issues that they care about, especially on immigration. And so they say, yeah, I'm voting for them, but I don't really consider myself a Democrat, and especially for younger Latino voters. So it's really key that there be investment in outside organizations that are doing yep. voter registration and voter mobilization and educating young Latino voters about the issues and where the candidates stand, and then pushing the candidates to be stronger. That's what I'm really proud of at JOLT is we haven't towed the party line, and we've pushed candidates to be stronger on the issues that matter to our community, and now more younger Latino voters trust us because of that. Ch Chairman, the byproducts of this election among other byproducts, were that now the U.S. House has the most Latino members ever. 37 members of the U.S. House are Latino, the highest number, including the first two Latinas ever elected from Texas. Um, the legislature is still lagging the breakdown of the population. I, you know, the state is right now 57% people of color. The legislature is not 57% members of color. It's about half or a little bit better than half. Um, I, I saw a story in the Dallas Morning News today about the Dallas County delegation, how it's changed over the last 20 years. 20 years ago, 1999, one Hispanic member of the Dallas County delegation to the legislature, Domingo Garcia, today five. Um, progress. It, it, the delegation does not necessarily mirror perfectly the demographics of the county, but it's getting a lot closer. Do you believe that the makeup of this legislature coming out of this election, the narrowing of the partisan split and the greater diversity that you see will move the needle on some of these issues we're talking about for the Latino community. Yes, I, I think they'll, it'll move the needle for sure. Whether we'll get over, you know, from the from the five yard line uh, into the end zone will be a, a you know a different matter. But you know, having uh, Latinas like Terry Mesa and Ana Maria Ramos in Dallas County, who are uh, representing um, non Latino majority districts, uh, having Celia Israel and Gina Nojosa here in Travis County, who are representing uh, non Latino majority districts. I, I forgot Victoria Neave as well. Um, those are relatively recent phenomena. And uh, it, it speaks to their ability to cross over uh, and not just simply be defined as a Latino representative. That, that, that requires a lot of talent. And uh, right. people, and, and there have been a lot of uh, MALC members who have been unable to do that, and many of them lose in, in Democratic primaries. It's, it's having the ability to, um, to appeal to a broader slice of the electorate and work across lines. Um, I, I think it, it, by definition, will help over, over time. And... Um, if in the next election cycle, uh, Democrats get close and more Latinos get elected, um, you know, you can see a pretty profound change going into redistricting. I was, I was like, when you were saying, hey, you know, the, the, the electorate doesn't match up with, with, the, with um, the representation, I was like, a big part of that is gerrymandering, right? And right. That, that you have parties in power who get to choose their constituents as opposed to constituents getting... And by the way, that's to about to happen again. You know, to, you had a critical in election cycle in which you'll have, uh, you know, in all likelihood, all Republican 
control of that process again. And so, you know, definition of insanity is expecting a different outcome, right? Well, uh, I, I'm not sure about uh, about the assumption. I mean, uh, clearly Republicans are trying to do everything they can by rigging the census, by uh, later, um, you know, by by in engaging in intentional discrimination on 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 gerrymandering, right. and and then by trying to change the rules about who gets counted. I mean, there have been a number of so different lawsuits. So you're hopeful that the system will rebel against these efforts and that things will will stabilize a little bit or get a little bit more favorable to your side. Yeah, no, no side. question, no question. Right. And and I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility with a Donald Trump, an embattled Donald Trump on on the on the ballot in 2020 that we take the majority in the House. In in Texas, at in, least in, in part because there were so many, I mean, you're basically, you're at 8367 now, you just have to win back essentially 10 more seats to take the majority. And the reality is there were a bunch of seats that you came close to winning that no one expected would be competitive this last time that you all will be targeting in the next elections like yeah and, and and I got to tell you you know there were a bunch of seats that flipped that weren't tar weren't being targeted exactly. I mean it was just the the rising that rising t Trump tie so who knows what's going to happen in, Correct. in the next election I, let me yeah. let me come at this from the perspective of issues rather than candidates or the split in the legislature chairman uh, we have heard the new speaker Dennis Bond and the lieutenant governor and the governor all talk about public education and property tax relief or reform as the main issues of the session we've almost heard nothing about anything else are those issues individually or together that will resonate in the Latino community in Texas? Public education and property tax, at least as those things are being discussed by leadership. Certainly public ed, right? I mean, that, that issue, I, we, we had a press conference with, uh, with Jolt and other members of the uh, you know, Latino coalition yesterday, and it was education, education, education. Uh, Latinos are 52% of the public school population in the state of Texas. Right. Unless we get that, as I call it, the infrastructure of opportunity right and drive more resources, uh, we're going to be a permanent underclass that will be permanently un underemployed and permanently yeah. under undereducated. And I think Texans are, it's Latinos and then Texans in general. So our state <clears throat> government has set, uh, several cycles ago, set an ambitious plan that by 2030, 60% of all Texans over the age of 25 between 25 and 34 would have a college Some degree. Some college completion. We are so far from achieving that. Yep. By 2020, 60% of all jo new jobs in Texas are going to require a bachelor's degree. Well, 35% of Texans over the age of 25 ha have one. And if you look at Latinos, it's just right. 18%. You know, for as much as the GOP talks about in this state talks about Texans first, they're actually reserving some of the best paying and good jobs for Californians. They're not investing in Texans. They're refusing to right. invest in children. And as soon as that school level, primary education level peaked where the population became majority brown and black, that's when you started to see massive divestment from our public education system. So it's a real question of whether they're going to be willing to invest in who Texas is and its diverse population. We, we have heard, Chairman, uh, over the last several cycles, a different speaker, Joe Strauss, and different state leaders talk about public edu education as a priority. And people have said, well, great, they're identifying this issue that we agree should be the priority, only to discover at the end of every legislative session, actually, it was too hard to solve. Why are you more optimistic now than you've been in the past about the ability to get this done. Yeah, and and, and my optimism is is tempered. Let me. I, I don't think we get Maybe I'm, the premise is that you are optimistic. Yeah, yeah, Maybe no, the premise is a problem. I don't think we get school finance done uh, in a regular session. I think it's going to require uh, a number of special sessions. Candidly, I saw this movie before in in 2006 because uh, the underlying assumption is that you can achieve, you know, pro property tax buy downs at the local level and put more more money on a recurring basis in public education that will move with enrollment growth every year 
uh, and, and that somehow there's a magic you know, revenue fairy that, that, that is going to allow you to do that. I'm not sure that, that, that that's a very difficult execution. That's yeah. really, really hard. Right. Uh, beca because in the end, you, ha you have to acknowledge that our public schools are already underfunded, right? I mean, if you look even on, on an on a, um, inflation-adjusted basis and a geography-adjusted basis, we're still uh, in, in near the bottom. Uh, of states, right? I think we're number, number 38, maybe 39 in terms of per pupil funding. And so, you know, we haven't adjusted formulas in a couple decades, uh, cost of living formulas. And, and so w there is a lot of deficit to make up. We have a, a structural hole in the budget uh, in, in the franchise tax that we have to deal with. So I don't know how, you know, how people yeah, we're going to cut your taxes and bring more money into public ed. I think that's just, I, I don't see how that math works. It's, com it's complicated math. And on the property tax thing, Chairman, let me just stay with you for a second and ask, is that an issue that necessarily resonates with the community of Latino Texans or Latino voters? Are they feeling the property tax crunch as yeah. much? I'm sure everybody's feeling the property tax crunch because, it, you know, this state, state because it doesn't have a statewide property tax or statewide income tax, feels it at the local level the most. It's a structural problem, so everybody feels it. But, but if you're a parent and, 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 and you, you know that the only way the Anchia family is moving forward is if we go to high-quality public schools and then high-quality public universities, you, you're willing to place your bet on the education piece rather than the tax cut piece. Right. Yeah, and I would just add, you know, I have a two-year-old. I know that my family and friends that have children, they're not thinking about what is the legislature doing on property taxes, but they're thinking like what, what Representative Anchia said, where is my child going to school? What kind of quality education are they going to have? And the truth is that it's, it's stark in this state for our community. We have one in 10 American public school students live in this state. Our wholesale failure to invest in them ha are having repercussions at the state level for when students are trying to enter college and they're yeah. not ready. And we are one of the states that are most punitive. Not only are we failing to invest in students in primary education, but once they get to college, we are failing to invest in grants and scholarships for them. And students are being strapped with student debt. The estimates are that by uh, 2025, 40% of student debt borrowers are going to be in default. In so this, th this dwarfs every other issue that we could be talking about. At the first meeting of the Mexican-American Legislative Caucus, we're not talking about immigration. We've got the Higher Education Commissioner, Raymond Paredes, coming in to talk about how Latinos are doing in higher ed, uh, what their preparation is, what level of rigor we should be applying right. uh, uh, as a state uh, in our in our K-12 system. That, that's what we're talking about. That's your, that's your priority. But yeah, and at JOLT, too, that's what we're doing. We've proposed bills with uh, support of legislators, a college for all bill, uh, to roll back some of the most punitive measures that our state has against student uh, debt borrowers. We're one of the only states that take away teachers and nurses', nurses licenses if they are unable to pay back their student debt. It's ridiculous and it also hurts our economy. So those are some of the bills that we're looking at. For us, it's a top issue for Latinos across our community as well. Albert Morales, I want to, in, the, in the few minutes we have left, I want to come back to you and, uh, and acknowledge the moment we're, we're in sitting here today. Last night was the president's speech, which Christina to earlier talking about what he believes is a national security and humanitarian crisis on the border. Tomorrow, as we sit here, the president will be coming to McAllen, Texas, accompanied by the lieutenant governor of Texas, potentially other statewide elected officials to, uh, to further press this issue of, uh, of the border. You know, we hear also at the same time that border apprehensions are at a 45-year low. So at a, as, a, as an issue at the national level, Albert, what do you see in the Hispanic 
community on this issue? Is the is this issue resonating? And does that have the potential, I'll come back to our Texans in a second, to reverberate back as an issue that will be on our radar screens here? Albert, what do you think about that? Well, I, I think it's going to be one of those issues that will continue to motivate people. Um, you have to remember, our, if, if you look at some of this data, isn't probably uh, public, but I'm free to share it. Um, the anger level started immediately after, the, after uh, President Trump got elected. And that has been, um, <clears throat> that level has been sustained through, as we saw, uh, this past midterm election. His continuation of, of holding these, uh, you know, press conferences, whatever he calls them, on, on the border will only serve to, I think, uh, keep uh, our community uh, alert and uh, motivated to turn out for the next election. Uh, you know, there are going to be some off-year elections, maybe not uh, statewide or that have uh, legislative repercussions in, in Texas, but you do have some key uh, mayoral races in Sizes where where voters can can continue to to remain in, engaged, if you will. Um, what I, I did want to touch on on something that that was uh, that was uh, touched upon earlier as it relates to the census. I guess to shift gears a little bit here uh, because it is important. Uh, we're, we're coming up on, on on the next census here really quick. The issue of the citizenship question gives us a lot of pause. We've been doing a a great deal of research throughout the country in the form of focus groups. And <clears throat> when we ask our, our participants whether or not they plan to participate in the census, if, if indeed the citizenship question appears on, on the form, many say they won't. And while, while states like Texas and California stand to gain because of population growth, some congressional seats and, um, and whatnot, uh, this, this does, in a way, um, have some, some some negative repercussions for our community. If that if that citizen question remains, for example, in LA County alone, we project that we could lose as many as two congressional seats, and and possibly one in Harris County in Texas. So um, you know he, he he does a lot of this to distract away from what he is doing inside his in in his administration, whether it's the census, whether it's uh, trying to sell off our public lands, uh, strip Americans from. From healthcare, so we have to remain uh, vigilant and right. keep our eye on on the ball, if you will. Chair, Chairman, is uh, are we going to have a conversation about border security in this session? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, I'm hopeful that we can take that that money that we've been spending and put it into public ed. Um, the the reality is that. Uh, that administrations have bound us a little bit. They've created this this infrastructure and they've increased salaries at right. DPS under the cover of border security. And so now we have this, this DPS military complex that uh, needs to be fed. And um, I think that's going to impact yeah. the ability of uh, the legislature to, to spend money on public ed. The, the, yes. Yeah, I would just, you know, Trump going down to the border. For me, I was surprised. I, I, Trump said there was a crisis on the border. And I said, wow. Trump and I agree on something. There is a crisis on the border, but it's not the one that he sees. For me, it's the fact that in the counties he's visiting have some of the highest uninsured rates in the country. Um, it is the fact that there has been almost wholesale neglect and mistreatment of border communities and failure of investment from our federal and state government into the needs. He's literally standing along demanding $5.7 billion to build a border wall 
among modern American communities that don't have running water and electricity, um, and asking taxpayers to pay for that. So I think that you're going to continue to see Texans and Latinos be outraged by being punched, being beat up upon, um, being mistreated, and being taken for granted. Uh, Chairman, last question before we, uh, we end here, and I appreciate you all for your time in this uh, very thoughtful conversation. The Speaker of the Texas House, Dennis Bonin, as we sit here as now 24 hours or less in the job, but will have an extraordinary impact on the work of the legislature of the House and, and the byproducts of this session will have enormous impacts uh, on Texas. Will Dennis Bonin be good for the Hispanic community? Yeah, he's saying and doing all the right things. I will, I will give him that. He, we had a very productive discussion yeah. at the Mexican-American Legislative Caucus. His uh, commitment, I think, to, to us and to the state was that, you know, we're, we're, we're not going to focus on those anti-Hispanic, anti-immigrant issues that have characterized the past uh, couple sessions. We're going to focus on, on education. We want to lock arms with him on that yeah. uh, because we know that benefits uh, the people that we represent. So, Everything's going to be great until it's not. Right. And uh, you'll and, know when you and, know. And we'll know when we know. Right. Okay. Let's stop there. Chairman Christina Albert Morales, thank you very much for being here. Thank you. You've been listening to Point of Order, the newest member of the Texas Tribune's family of podcasts. Thanks to our guests, State Representative Rafael Anchia, Christina Zinzun of Jolt, Texas and Albert Morales of Latino Decisions. And thanks to the sponsors of this episode, Methodist Healthcare Ministries and former U.S. Ambassador to Mexico, Tony Garza. Be sure to check out the Tribune's deep coverage of the 86th legislative session at texastribune.org. And if you like what you see there or hear here, tell friends about us. Until next time, I'm Evan Smith.